Hello, and welcome back to the Growth Equation Podcast. As always, I'm Clay Skipper, here with Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. How are we doing, guys? Doing well, doing well. Just had a warm shower. Uh, we're having some plumbing issues, so the the hot water is taking a while to heat up, and I had like a full six minutes where I could have done the whole cold shower thing, um, but out of pure resistance and not wanting to be freezing. I just sat there and waited for the shower to get warm. You got to do hard things, Brad. Like jump in the cold shower, man. Give the internet bros what they want. Brad freezing in the shower and then shivering all day and then posting on Twitter and Instagram about how it's life-changing. Have you tried? Have you tried the cold shower, Brad? And you're not a fan, or you just this is something you've a position you've taken up, and you're you're gonna stick to it? No, I've tried the cold shower. Um, I did, and I gave it two weeks. And by the end of the two weeks, I hated it a little bit less, um, but I still didn't like it at all. And it wasn't so much getting through the actual like freezing shower. I got my breathing under control and all that stuff. Really, after like the third time. Um, it was more just, I had the chills for like three hours after, and that was not fun. Um, so it's just don't want to have the chills. Now, listen, someone could spin that and say like, I'm burning calories because my body's having to work to heat me up. Um, and if I was living life to burn calories, that would be a lovely pursuit, but I'm not. And oftentimes like right now, I prefer an iced coffee to a hot coffee and I wouldn't have been able to have an iced coffee. I'd be sipping on tea all day. Yeah, you're forgetting, Brad, that chills is just weakness leaving your body. You know, that's that's what you're uh, you're forgetting here. Yeah, I don't know what you're doing, Brad. You're just you're just losing the hypothermogenetic, like brown fat activation potential here, and you're just wasting it, wasting away, Brad. This could have this could have ten x your lifting routine. I'm I'm just guessing. Science hashtag. All right, y'all. Well, listen for new listeners because parody and reality are more and more enmeshed on the internet. It seems uh, this is parody. I don't love a cold shower. Neither does Steve. I don't know about Clay. There's nothing wrong with them. If you like a cold mm -hmm. shower, shower cold. If you like a hot shower, shower hot. But we are not here to talk about showers today. We are here to talk about the pursuit of excellence and greatness and falling in love with a certain activity or craft and the blessing and curse that that can be. And um, since the main character of the story that teed up this topic is a track and field athlete, we're going to turn it over to Steve, our resident track and field expert, to intro the topic. All right. So this week... We're going to go deep on a wonderful piece that uh, an interview with Holly Bradshaw, who is Holly Bradshaw. She is the Olympic bronze medalist in the pole vault at the uh, Tokyo Olympics. So this past Olympic Games won the bronze is in her early 30s. So spent a, you know, years climbing the ladder, doing everything possible to like get on that medal stand, hit that glory moment captured a medal for her country and accomplished it and then has now opened up and essentially asked, was it worth it? 
And some quotes I'm going to pull out from her piece, which I highly recommend. We put it in last week's newsletter as well for newsletter subscribers. Um, Have I done too much damage is what she asked. She said that winning that bronze medal has damaged me physically and mentally. I just worry, have I damaged myself too much that I can't get back from that? And, And she goes on to highlight, you know, some of the the behavioral changes, the sacrifices, the kind of losing the joy of competing. And then one thing that stood out to me is she said, I say to my husband, I don't know who I am. When I retire, who am I going to be? And that worries me a little bit. I even said to him, you've only known me as Holly the athlete. What if I'm completely a different person? So it really is getting at this this heart of a question that I think we all ponder often is this pursuit of excellence is, is it possible to do it in a sustainable way? Like, do you, what do you lose on the other side of it? Um, Is, you know, can you marry this obsessive plus harmonious passion, all topics that we at the growth equation cover. And I think it's just a, a fascinating way to dive into it. Yeah, so let's throw out some some concepts from the research, maybe as a starting point, just to ground our conversation. Um, the arrival fallacy, coined by Tahal Ben Shahar, that argues humans convince ourselves that when we reach a certain goal, we will have arrived, we'll find happiness, fulfillment, contentment, peace. And yet, time and time again, when we do reach that goal, those things are fleeting, and we often find that whatever we thought we'd get, we didn't, and then we get hungry and we try to arrive again, hence why it's a fallacy. I think that's really helpful here. Self-complexity theory, a big part of Master of Change, argues that when we define ourself through only one endeavor, and that one endeavor changes or shifts or something negative happens, we lose a sense of who we are. The opposite is a differentiated and integrated self, having multiple components of your identity, having them cohere into a cohesive whole. That way you can lean into certain parts when there's lack of stability in other parts. And harmonious versus obsessive passion. Harmonious passion, pursuing something because you love it. Obsessive passion, to steal Steve's simple definition, pursuing something because you're compelled to do it. You have a true compulsion. And I think that all of these things intellectually make total sense But when the rubber meets the road and when you're actually trying to be the best in the world at something, it's very, very hard to apply these terms, to not just know them in your head, but to know them in your bones. So are there any other like guiding constructs here that we could use other than just like post-sport transition being really hard? Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I think those are the the big ones to kind of put there. I would also say like the the transition ties into not just like self-complexity but just kind of like identity theories in general, which basically tell us that like we go through different phases of like exploration and then cementing of our identity. So we have this like spectrum of how loosely or strongly, you know, held 
do we do we hold that identity? And the example I like to give is like, you know, go back to junior high or elementary school and you're exploring a whole ton. Like you're a fireman one week and then the next week you get read a book about policemen and you want to be a policeman, right? You shift really a lot. And then as we grow into adults, we tend to cement around things. So our work, our passions, our pursuits, et cetera. The one thing that I think is really important in that idea is that athletes tend to prematurely cement early because they get identified as like a protege, a prodigy, like someone who could be good at this while the rest of their peers are still in that exploration phase. So it it tends to, because they cement early, it tends to, tying it to self-complexity, tends to narrow us um, much sooner than, than normally we would, uh, which I think leads to many of the problems where we're going to kind of explore and the problem with like moving on or retiring or transitioning. Yeah. I think that that is, um, that's a hundred percent accurate about the identity fusion just for athletes, for math prodigies, chess prodigies, um, musicians, really anything where you're specializing and getting a lot of validation from a single thing starting in childhood. Um, makes it really hard because you don't get to develop complexity when, you're, uh, when your sense of identity is most fluid and malleable. It cements, as Steve said, really early. I'm going to knock out the easiest one of these three big constructs because I really think it is, which is the arrival fallacy. And I think here it is just knowing that whatever you think you will feel when you achieve the goal will not be lasting And that is why it is so important to enjoy the pursuit of the goal. There's nothing wrong with wanting to win a gold medal, wanting to hit the New York Times bestseller list, wanting to get promoted to the C-suite, wanting to finally get married or have a kid, whatever your goal is. But if you think that that thing, that reaching that thing will make you a different person and suddenly fulfill you, that is just false. And it's okay that it doesn't fulfill you. That's just our nature. So the takeaway from that is in the pursuit of the goal, it better be meaningful. Because when you look back on it, you are not going to say that achieving this thing was worth it or was meaningful. What you might say is that pursuing this thing was worthwhile. And I really think like that's just, that's something that we should teach anyone striving for a goal is like you better enjoy the process enough and find meaning and value in it and forge relationships along the way and so on and so forth. Because whatever carrot is at the end of the road that you think is going to change your life is not going to change your life, but walking the path to get there might. So I, I think, again, this is, this is great because this is awesome in theory. And I think knowing this like helps you to come back to it, but it's so hard in practice. And I would argue that the vast majority of us, 90 whatever percent plus, start out understanding and pursuing things for that joy, right? We don't fall into like a sport, a club, a pursuit because they're like, oh, this kind of sucks, but I might be good at it. I'm going to go down that path. Like most of us, most of us pursue it because we're like, this is fun. Like I enjoy some part of this. Like I love being a teammate or like competing or what have you. But what research overwhelmingly shows across sport, across business, across life is Once those rewards, those accolades start coming, it naturally shifts us, 
right? And that joy, that pursuit, that that thing, like naturally for just about everyone kind of goes away. In a lot of ways, it's similar to another concept that we know a lot about, which is like leadership and power, right? There's all sorts of ideas, philosophers, and research that shows like no matter how intrinsically motivated or like well-meaning, once we get power, it shifts some of that away, even if you have the best of intentions. It's just part of part of the gig. There's uh, some wonderful research by Dr. Keltner, calls it the power paradox, I believe, uh, that that illustrates this. And, and I think it's the same with motivation. So I think it's one of these things where, yes, we have to hold on to that, like, knowledge of the rival fallacy is real. And, like, we've got to work against that. But also acknowledging that that is going to be really freaking hard. And if you're younger when you pursue this, almost, like, not impossible, but but nearly unless you have the right coach, the right parents, the right foundations, like guiding you and nudging you and keeping you perspective along the way. I think that your last point about having the right people around you is um, really important and not just for elite athletes because like we're not world-class. We're not Malcolm Gladwell or Michael Lewis or Bill Simmons, but I would argue that we're national class I mean, our books were national bestsellers. Clay's writing for a nationally known magazine. So we've faced this to some extreme, and I've certainly felt the shift in caring more about making a list or whatever the reward or accolade is. But I think that having knowledge that it's not going to fulfill me has helped so that when I do achieve the reward, I don't freak out that like it's never enough. I just know, of course, it's not enough. Nothing's ever enough. And I think it has pushed me to keep working with you, Steve, and to expand the team and bring Clay in because what I've realized is that what's going to make this fulfilling and meaningful and fun is the people that I'm doing it with. And that is like the ultimate antidote, I think, for falling prey to the trap of the arrival fallacy. So it's like you kind of actively have to work against it. It's not to say that, I mean, we recorded a podcast. I was pretty down when my book didn't hit the New York Times bestseller list, but I was down for two days, not two months because of one, this knowledge and mindset. And then two, the fact that I'm doing this in a team where I genuinely like enjoy more days than not. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that that's true. I agree a hundred percent with you. I think where we've putting our, our own critique on where we've benefited is we quote unquote arrived in writing a little bit later. Um, and I think that gives us the ability to use the wisdom of maybe our earlier experiences. I know your earlier experiences pursuing things. I know my early experiences, like not doing well on like the obsessing over sport and singular identity, like allows me to not have that aspect and to like approach things differently now is almost like the second go round. So I think the answer is yes, absolutely. hundred percent, like surround yourself wisely, make sure you have coaches, teammates, like workers, family, whatever it is, support group that, that kind of keeps you in check and allows you to keep the right things centered in your life. Um, but it's, it's hard, man. And it's harder if it occurs earlier. But so Clay, if I'm not mistaken, our listeners don't know you as well. Like you 
wanted to be a writer before Steve and I did. Like you were going to go to journalism school. You apprenticed with one of the great writers there was. You grew up in a media family. So like you could argue that your identity was maybe a little bit more foreclosed on this path early on. So how have you dealt with it? It's interesting. Yeah. Let's... Um, with writing, I don't know. I mean, I, I will say that like I worked at GQ for seven and a half years. And after no longer being at GQ, it was really hard to have to sort of divorce my identity from the title of GQ staff writer, which I took a lot of like pride in. And I think will afforded me a fair amount of cultural capital. Um, so I don't know. That's been that's been tough. But at the same time, as the whole time I was there, I loved the job and I had a tremendous experience with it. But there was a lot of time while I was there where I still wasn't satisfied with it, right? So it's sort of that idea that I had always wanted to be a GQ writer. And then when I became one, it's exactly what you're talking about with this arrival fallacy. So I think I just had to remember like, okay, even when I when that was a core part of my identity, it wasn't as fulfilling or satisfying as I maybe always imagined it, it would be. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to, to, I think for me now, I think of this more in terms of running rather than writing because I, I was never a runner. I was an athlete. I'm just uh, laughing an- because you wrote cover stories for GQ and you're a 257 marathoner. So like, it's funny that 258, 258, think it's the opposite. So maybe, maybe, maybe the answer is to whatever you're like actually good at to go find something that you love twice as much that you're not as good at. <laughs> well, you I know, do think I, one, <laughs> one thing to point out here is that like, I feel like maybe we're, tr- we're talking about this as if this is a, something that can be beat. And that that might just maybe we just accept like oh we are going to fall prey to the arrival fallacy and that's okay like the thing that, an interesting wrinkle about this story is that Holly Bradshaw is she has a master's in sports psych and she co-authored a paper about the post Olympic blues so so she like went into this eyes wide open and still got tripped up by it because it is such like a, it's just how, it's it's how we're wired. But yeah, I mean, to bring it back to, to, to come back to running, I think the thing that, that is interesting about this through the lens of running and also may make it a bit more relatable or accessible to people who are, maybe they're listening to this and they're like, I'm not an Olympic athlete. I don't have to deal with this, but there's such a thing as like, and similar to the post-Olympic blues, there's the post-marathon blues, right? Or even, I don't know if it, if it, if it, I don't know the science says if it's a 5k or 10k, but this idea that like you work very hard for something and then you get it. And after it's over, there's this dip and you're kind of like, well, what do I do next? And that is what happened to me with running. I was used to just run recreationally. And then I signed up for my first marathon in 2018, loved it. Day after the marathon, I remember sitting at work and being like, why do I feel so sad? And part of it, of course, is like physical depletion and your body's exhausted. But I think I signed up for another race like the next day. Um, And so I'm sure that is something that people listening have felt in some way shape or form whether it's running i don't know if brad you experienced this like when you train for a big lift and you hit it um 
but it's sort of, yeah, I think it's something that ever a universal experience, even though obviously this was written by an Olympian who had a very unique and exceptional and, and, and rare type of lifestyle. Yeah. I think that it's any big goal. So I don't think it just has to be sport. And I think that there are probably a number of reasons that this happens. So the first is if you didn't know about the arrival fallacy and you thought it would somehow change you, then you realize it doesn't. Then there's just the fact that often these big goals are organizing principles in our life. So you have certain workouts or you have certain milestones and it really gives your life a sense of structure and you have some control and you're operating within a system and then that system goes away. So there's like disorder or instability and we know that that's not comfortable. And then um, the third thing is just like a sense of purpose. You know, if you really were pushing towards this thing and it gave you a lot of meaning, now you've achieved it or you failed, it doesn't matter, but it's no longer there uh, and there's a gap and an emptiness and that can lead to sadness or even like grieving of the fact that like, huh, this, this thing is no longer there. I think that ultimately the remedy for that is to zoom out and not just think of yourself as I'm racing this marathon, but to think of yourself as a runner. And then the progression is, oh, I'm going to have multiple marathons in my career as a runner. And then beyond that, I'd zoom out even another level and not think of yourself as a runner, but think of yourself as an athlete or like a person who does hard things or whatever it is, because then you can always like grow and continue to learn regardless if the races are done or even if your quote unquote running career is done. Again, easy to say, very hard to do when you're in it. And I think you're right. I think we can't beat this, but I think that as Steve and I have both written about extensively, expectations are really important. So if you expect that this is going to happen and you have some resources and coping skills, when it does happen, you'll be prepared. If you don't expect this is going to happen, you're going to be like, why do I feel so empty and lonely and sad and depressed? What's going on? What's wrong with me? Um, so just like, you know, knowing that there's, uh, there's going to be some painful wandering after a, a big goal or a career shift or whatever it is, uh, doesn't make that experience easier, but well, no, it does make the experience easier, I guess. Like just knowing it, shifting that expectation. You, you know, I think there's, I, I think Clay, you're right. Accepting that it's part of reality is so important. And even if we look at like, this is how motivation works. Like this is how dopamine works. Like it fuels us for the pursuit, like not the actual reward. Like most of dopamine and other triggers, hormones that that push us, like they get us to do, to like go after the thing, but they don't give us that good hit when we actually get the thing. We get a smaller bump of like hormones that tie into motivation and pursuit and all those things. So it's, it's like, we're, we evolved to be this way. <laughs> so I, I think part of it is like, we're not going to escape that. So accept it. But I also think that we have a lot of power and control to it, like acknowledge that, see that, and then like figure out, I'll call it a coping mechanism, a way to cope with acknowledging that and signing up for another marathon is one way to do that. And for a while, that might be healthy, but that's not going to be healthy for the rest of your life because at some point you're not going to be able to keep doing marathons or like at some point that challenge isn't going to give you enough of that like oomph where you like 
get out of that kind of rut. So you've got to, you've got to have something else. And I think this is what is so hard. And I would, you know, on the running example, whenever I talk to people who get into running later, I always tell them like, that's great. Like you're making the journey towards, as Brad said, a runner, which is wonderful, but also can, if you cement around that can suck as well. But one of the things I tell them is like diversify your challenges early. Like, because when runners come to running later, they often see marathons as the ultimate challenge. And that's the thing they're going to try for because like you walk into a running store and like people ask you, have you run a marathon? And I always have to say no. And then they look at me like, oh, this guy probably doesn't know what he's talking about. Like he's never done a marathon. Um, and that that's happened multiple times um, because like in the lay community, we see that. But when you grew up through like high school, cross country and track, you didn't just jump through the marathon. You saw this diversity of challenges. So where you'd have a fall cross country season. And then once that was gone, like, yeah, you might've loved cross country, but your challenge shifts a little bit because maybe you run 5k and cross country over hills and stuff. And then on the track, you run the mile or the 800 or the two mile or whatever have you. So the challenge shifts. And I would challenge people like in your endeavor, I think that creates a little bit more healthy dynamic is instead of getting done with that marathon and always going to the next marathon, go sign up and say, I'm going to see how fast I can get over a 5k or 10k. I'm going to go do a park run or a cross country challenge where it's like different or a trail run or whatever have you. And in that way, again, is a way of like creating a little bit of diversity of challenge, which I think is good for this dynamic we're we're exploring here. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the other thing to to say is that you you kind of I mean, if you're an Olympian, you obviously have to take it unbelievably seriously because you're trying to do something that's so impossibly hard. But I feel like people have a good, you know yourself well, and you know if you're starting to maybe take it a little too seriously and that is an opportunity to just tr- like repat try to repattern a little bit and be like look for the last seven weeks i've been sticking religiously to this marathon program and it's driving me nuts so like maybe the next time i go out it's a little hard in new york city but like if you're if you like someone like steve you live in houston or brad you're in Asheville, go for a trail run like leave the watch at home and just be like, all right, I'm just going to go run and just see if I can reconnect with the thing that made me love it in the first place and just let go of the, the goal and the constant striving. Um, Cause I think being in that sort of place of, of not having like every time you're training, you're working towards a goal and it can, you can just become, obs- at least the way I'm wired, it can become obsessed with it and just trying to do something different that allows you to unhook a little bit from that, carrot at the end of the stick, it can be a powerful experience. You know, Clay, that reminds me, I've got to tell this story, but years ago I started working with, um, I've told this story publicly, so I'll go ahead. Natasha Rogers, who was a NCAA champion in the 10 K and then while in college placed top three at the Olympic trials in the 10 K, um, but didn't have the standard. So didn't get to go to the Olympics. This was 2012. That really kind of, I don't know, messed her up. Like she had this goal, blah, blah, blah. She quit the sport, quit, didn't run her senior year of college, quit the sport, like moved to South America or something for a while and just stopped. And then like a couple of years later, decided to come back 
and try it and tried one team that was like very a great team, but very strict and just didn't like it quit again. And then called me up and said, Hey, I want to get back into the sport. And we had all these conversations and we did exactly what you just outlined there, which is here's like this world-class athlete. And for months she ran without a watch, like did workouts by feel like went on the trails, like just enjoyed it. Her quote unquote hard workouts were like running from, you know, lamppost to lamppost. There's, there's simple like game, like things like that. And eventually like I got her back to, or I helped, you know, get her back to, I think she was fifth at the U S champs one year, won a U.S. championship in the half marathon. And then she went to a professional group and made the Olympics in, in 2021, I believe. She made the world champs last year. I know I forget exactly, but like had, had like made a world championships, et cetera, and had, has done some crazy things. And I think, you know, we see Olympians trying to get to that level and often the the results or the effort is like double down, put in the effort, like single mindedness. But sometimes even at that level, you have to step back. And I'm reminded of something that Brad and I wrote way back in peak performance, which is like following Bernard Lagat, who's you know, one of the best distance runners in the world world in history. And what did he do at the end of every season? He took, it was something like two months off where he was just like a normal dude (laughs) because the demand to be like a world champion champion was so high that he needed the mental like refresh to get off. And that, I think maybe this is what it gets off. That takes a hell of a lot of like confidence and security to not do your craft for two months while all of your competitors are probably putting in the work and knowing this mental refresh is going to give me the, the, the motivation, the clarity, the ability to be like focused for the next eight months or whatever it is until I have to be on top of my game. That only works if you're playing the long haul. Like part of what made Legat so good is what five Olympics. Yeah. Like he was a world-class athlete for 22 years but if you just want to win a gold medal next year, get the promotion or whatever, well, then it actually doesn't make sense to take two months off. It makes sense to go really, really hard, achieve your goal, and then flame out and not have a life beyond it. So I think some of this is also like playing the the long game, or as James Cars would say, the infinite game, not the finite game. So the finite game, right, is winning the race, making the Olympics, getting the promotion, hitting the bestseller list. The infinite game is like being an athlete or being a writer or being a good person. Um, And I do think that so much of this just comes back to the people that you have around you and then also setting like some fairly rigid constraints about how much time you spend doing a thing or like the other way to think about it is minimum effective doses for other things. So at the risk of repeating myself, because it's something I've talked about a lot, but it's worth it just to reiterate and for people that are new to the podcast is this notion of, I think, thinking of identity like a house. And if you just have one room in your house and that one room floods or catches fire, you're in big trouble. But if you have multiple rooms in your house, when one room floods or catches fire, you can go into other rooms. And I think that our identity ought to be like a house that has multiple rooms. That doesn't mean that you need to spend the same amount of time in every room. It just means that you want to have a couple rooms that are important to you and never let them get moldy. So what might that mean? 
you're training for a 250 marathon or whatever it is, that's the runner room is going to be the big room. But don't let the relationship room get moldy. Don't let the professional room get moldy. Don't let the spiritual room get moldy. Uh, you've got kids. You've got young kids. The parenting room might be a huge room, but don't let the health room get moldy. Don't let the work room get moldy. You're launching a book. The book is going to be the big room, but don't let the athlete room get moldy. I mean, you get the point. But when you're in the thick of like really pursuing the goal and the closer you get to achieving it and the better you are, because to Steve's point at the beginning of the conversation, the more external validation that you're getting, the easier it is to say, eh, that room, I'm not going to get moldy. I'll just, it can be a week without me going in. It can be a month. And then suddenly that room is all moldy and you can't go in it anymore. And I think the constraint is defining a minimum effective dose for other areas of your identity that are important. And even if it feels like you're forcing yourself to lean into them, leaning into them. Now, Steve wants to say something, I'm going to let him. What I want to table is physically we can do this, but psychologically it's really freaking hard. Because I can say that I'm going to go to the family room and the athlete room, but if when I'm playing with my kids or when I'm at the gym, I'm just thinking about my book, well, then I'm not really disconnected from it. So let me tell you about how hard this is. Because I think I love this idea. Brad wrote about it beautifully. I've talked about it. Um, when I was, gosh, I must have been 19 or 20. And I talked to this this world-class sports psychologist, worked with a lot of great baseball players, track athletes, football guys, like all sorts. And he tells me this story about uh, one of the best female distance runners in the world at that time. And he says, you know, for a while she was struggling. Like you, you see these results, you know who this is, you see these down seasons. And I'm like, yeah. And everyone's like this super talented athlete. Like how come they haven't made their breakthrough? And then eventually she made the breakthrough and he's like, I, I, you know, do you know what the, the key was? And as a 19, 20 year old, I'm like, I don't know, training, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, knitting. And I go, and, and I'm like knitting. And he goes knitting. I told her she needed a hobby or pursuit that took her mind away from running and gave her a consistent community as well. So she had like this knitting group that she'd go to on like, I don't know, every other week or some, something like that. And at 19 or 20, I'm going to be honest, I blew that, that story off because I was like, knitting, you want me to knit or like find something like this? Like, forget this. Like, I'm going to work my ass off. So it's like, it's easy to, to like intellectualize, but to like understand and like go for that and buy into that, especially if you're young or cemented your identity around something is so freaking hard. But Yes, I would have been a better runner if I only would have taken up knitting. How do you deal with, though, the fact that for more and more of us, everything that we do kind of like falls under what someone might call your personal brand? So like 20 years ago, that's great. But today, if that runner is now posting on Instagram about her knitting and talking about how knitting is helping her be a better runner, and next thing you know on her running kit, she's sponsored by like the yarn company, then it doesn't really work. And I think that's another kind of modern day phenomenon that's real. Like we often joke about it, but we're getting more serious as I get better. It's like, oh, if I posted my deadlift, I'd probably sell more books. 
And that might be true, but now like it's all wrapped up in this goal directed pursuit. Um, and I think that it gets the worst when people are sharing like every intimate detail of their life. Well, well, I think, you know, when the research on, on choking or fear of failure, all point to this is like what pushes us to experience that fear of failure or the worst, like choking, it's almost inevitably has to be some sort of public part of your identity, right? That you're protecting or preventing from, you know, getting embarrassed, hurt, lost or, or whatever. And I think to your point there is we're increasingly making everything part of our public identity. So it becomes if if you are the knitter runner, the the runner who knits, like just filter that shit. Only post your good knitting. Right. But, but that's what everyone's doing. That's what everyone's doing. But the, the point is, and maybe the answer is like you've you've got to protect and have things outside of the social media identity personal brand world that like don't fall into that trap because if you put them in that trap then your incentives are going to shift and it might be now I read these books even to look like I'm like reading lots of books that are intellectual and smart and like fit this group on, you know, because that's what I post on social media. So I think it's, it's like every little part of that, you know, contributes to this problem we're seeing. I think the answer is just, I mean, I don't know if this is obvious. It's it's another thing that I think is simple, but really not, not easy. Just like, just have things you do that are not for external validation. Uh, I mean, I mean, ideally nothing you do would be for external validation, but that's, obviously impossible but if you're knitting <laughs> so that you can put your your wonderful yarn sh- structures this is someone who the clue does not knit since i just referred to i guess what you might call a scarf as a yarn structure uh it's not something you know you're putting online it's just something that you you're just doing to do it's like a, a intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and this, and this gets us to the most important part of this podcast, which is two things. A, why when Brad asked Steve, why don't you compete? Because it's not about that anymore, Brad. Like it's that intrinsic joy of running. And B, Brad says, Steve, why don't you ever reply to any of my lifting videos that I send you? Because I don't want to validate you extrinsically, Brad. I'm just helping you and making sure you're weightlifting room stays appropriately in the good category. I have so much to say about this. Why don't you compete? Just compete with yourself. I don't care if you enter races. I just want to see how fast you can run race against me. That's what I want. I want to see you suffer, but that's, but I do suffer. I make sure I suffer because suffering isn't about competing. I can suffer. This is the glory of, of doing something physically a five minute mile run all out hurts the same as a four minute mile run all out. I mean, as long as it's like near your max, right? So Mm -hmm. like if the goal is suffering, then suffer. If the goal is to get faster, like even if it's for me, I think that is like pushes me down this, I'm doing this for a different reason than just like the intrinsic joy of running 
experiencing what it's like to, you know, work through fatigue, et cetera. So Steve is the enlightened Buddha runner is my first takeaway. And then my videos, man, I'm just dying for some validation just from you, Steve. I don't need it from anyone else. It's my only fans account, only Steve. Although Clay likes my videos. You don't know that. I tell you that I like them. Well, that's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. But wait, to go back to go back to the house metaphor real quick, because I do think nowadays we can become too obsessed with the concept of work of like balance. And I, I think we can we can believe that we need to be balanced all the time. And I, I actually think sometimes this discussion can swing too far back the other way towards balance, like having healthy balance. I think it's okay to be unbalanced sometimes. Like you're going to go through periods of, if you want to do something, if you have a big lofty ambitious goal, you're going to have to go through a period of acute stress while you're chasing that goal. And so I, again, to go back to the house metaphor, I think it is okay to spend a lot of time in one room for a period of time. And maybe your other rooms, you don't want them to get moldy, but maybe they do get a little dusty. It's like getting a little crusty in there. And then once you once you achieve your goal, you then have to go and sort of like work towards balancing again. But I, I don't think like you can be balanced all the time. And I think it is okay. I mean, like training for a marathon is not healthy. <laughs> that is That is a period of acute stress that is very hard on your body. And that's why after you do it, you have to recover. And I think that's okay as long as you do do the recovery bit. And the problem is when you're redlining all the time and you don't have other rooms in your house that you tend to. Yeah, I mean, this is The Passion Paradox, a book that Steve and I wrote that no one, apparently including you, Clay, bothered to read. Um, but the subtitle of the book is literally The Benefits of an Unbalanced Life, which we tried to be provocative with and nobody bought the book, so that was a, a bad pitch. Um but yeah, the case we weren't making wasn't to go be obsessed and destroy yourself. It was exactly what you just said. It was that it is okay to go all in on things that matter to you so long as you don't leave everything else completely behind. Yeah. Um, and so long as you have the self-awareness to choose what you're doing. And it was really Steve's definition that made it simple for me, which is, are you doing this thing because you want to or because there's a compulsion? And if there's a compulsion, you're no longer choosing to do it. Um. It gets tricky with exercise, though, I think in particular, because there's like a very real biological uh, dependency that can form on exercise to feel a certain way. And because it can be really healthy, then the question is like, so you exercise because it's a compulsion, but is that a bad thing? I mean, there are days when I would choose not to exercise, but I feel like I need to, I feel compelled to. So I train for 45 minutes to an hour, and then I almost always feel better after. Um, if you take the most widely accepted definition of addiction, which is continued use despite negative consequences, I think that's another arbiter that you can hold it up to. So you might feel compelled to do something, but if it doesn't have negative consequences on your life, then that's okay. So it's almost like two levels. The What we want in the ideal is I'm doing this thing, I'm running, I'm writing because I want to. The second level is I'm doing this thing, I don't really want to, but I'm compelled to. If I don't get in my run or if I don't sit down to write today, I'm just going to, my biology, I'm going to feel icky and off. 
So long as you're not having negative consequences as a result of doing that, great, do it. If you are both compelled to do it and it's blowing up your marriage, your kids hate you, um, you're injuring yourself all the time, and then you keep doing it, that's when it's time to really reevaluate and potentially seek professional help. And I would add another layer to this, which I think is <laughs> undermentioned is like, is that compulsion replacing some other compulsion that is much more negative? <laughs> Meaning, is your exercise addiction replacing your drug addiction, essentially? Then you might be addic- addicted, it might be compelled, it might have a couple negative consequences, but not as many as the other thing that you were addicted to. So by all means, like go do it. And this is the nuance and complexity of it. I think we have the ideal and then we have different shades of reality that is just important to acknowledge and, and understand the, the trade-offs of each. Man, no one reads anything I write, we write. Steve, this is the section. There's a section of Master of Change, like in defense of workaholism, where essentially, you know, I, I, and I agree with you completely. And like the argument is that if you're going through a big transition, you just got divorced, you decided to get sober, you got laid off. And as so often happens, you fall completely in love and become obsessed with ultra running or name that sport. That's actually really healthy because it's better to be obsessed with ultra running than to be using a substance or to be spiraling into depression. However, that thing is often a bridge until you find a more well-balanced stability elsewhere. And I think that what works works until it gets in the way. So let's use a really extreme example. And this is an example that I think, you know, some somewhere upwards of 20%, I forget the data, Steve shared it a while ago, of ultra runners are in recovery. So let's take an ultra runner that's in recovery and let's let's go with opiates, like something that can really kill you. And this person goes from using uh, heroin to 100-mile races and like their entire life is just centered around ultra running. Is that a good trade? I'd say 100%, much better than abusing heroin. Fast forward 10 years. If that person's whole life is still centered around 100-mile races, is that a good thing? I'm not ready to judge that. I don't know. I think it depends. If that person is married to another ultra runner and they're in this ultra running community and their friendships are through the sport and they're not getting injured all the time, yeah, it's a great thing. Like, Who's to say that running ultra marathons isn't a better way to spend your life than working in an investment bank? I'm Not me. However, if you're doing it despite injuries, despite destructive impacts on your relationship, despite the fact that you don't really want to anymore, but you're compelled to, then I'd argue it was a really good thing for a period of time. But now the better thing is not to be using heroin, but also not to be using sports, but to have some other sources of meaning in your life. So these things are nuanced for sure. I, I just spoke to, I feel like I have an interesting perspective uh, uh, to share from that. Cause I just spoke to Courtney DeWalter not that long ago for this podcast. Um, that'll tell be our out. Audi- tell our audience who she is. Yeah. She is an ultra marathoner. She's, I would say probably the greatest female endurance athlete of all time. She just, um, did, a pretty unbelievable a feat of athleticism that's pretty incomprehensible, which is she ran three extremely challenging hundred mile races in three months. 
and she won all of them and she set course records on two of them. Um, and you know, she's somebody who she started out as a marathoner and then she signed up for, I think it was a 50 mile or was, and she didn't finish. And then she decided she did it. She would do finish 50 mile or did that. And then she did a hundred mile or then she did the Moab 240 at one point, which is 240 miles, which she won by the way, by 10 hours over men and women. She was the first finisher by 10 hours. But I asked her this question because I was like, okay, how do you make sure that this doesn't get to a point where you do it so much that you get injured and it gets taken away from you? And she said, for me, it's always about keeping joy in the front seat. And the and the time and the minute that joy is no longer in the front seat, then I know that it's time to stop. Now, obviously, that's very subjective. That's a it's a hard thing to measure. There's no there's no quantifiable as I know we are we we are big science lovers here. There's no way to quantify that. But I just think it's such a um wonderful perspective and something that is like that I've thought a lot about um in the time since I spoke to her. I can't wait for that interview. It's good. She is a she's a unique and special human and she has a lot of insight and wisdom to offer. Yeah. So then coming back to, um, to where we started a little bit is I think like there's, there's kind of two things I'm going to do my, my best to summarize here is we approach a close. I don't necessarily think we're there yet, but first and foremost, you can't beat the post marathon blues, the post goal emptiness, the, was it worth it? feeling and thoughts. That's just how we're wired. You'll feel those things more intensely if you expect to beat them or if you expect to have found fulfillment. Whereas if you just kind of know that like, yep, whether or not I have a big success or a big failure, I'm going to feel a little icky. That's just part of it. And then the best antidote is to like find meaning along the way. And as we've alluded to, and the research would agree, the easiest way to do that is to take on your pursuits and pursue excellence and greatness and peak performance with good people by your side. We know, right, Robert Valeran, the grand study of adult development out of Harvard, the famous quote, happiness is love, full stop. And by love, he doesn't just mean intimate love, he means relationships. So like when humans get old and age well and find fulfillment and happiness in life, it's all about relationships. So if you want to climb a big ass mountain, that's fine, but make sure you climb with the right people because like that's where the meaning is going to be. Um, we saw this, well, as we're recording, it's recent, but when this podcast comes out, it'll have been a week or two ago with the whole open AI tobacco and Sam Altman, like just how much the team was clearly the center of gravity in their building and how they were able to very quickly move through this chaos and, 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 and be okay because they're building this thing. They're pursuing greatness with the right people. So that's like the number one antidote. And then the second thing is to the extent that you can, you want to keep rooms in your house from getting moldy, take on knitting, so on and so forth, knowing that it always sounds easier intellectually than to actually do it. And the better you get at something, the harder it is to do, because the better you get, the more people are going to be like, oh, come in the main room, come in the main room. Or, oh, hey, Clay, I see you're in the other room, but if we take some pictures of you in the other room, we could relate it to the main room. Um, so there's a lot of pressure to either spend all your time in the main room or to start decorating all the rooms so that they look alike. And you got to resist that pressure as best as you can so that when 
the main room floods, catches fire, a la there's a transition, there's a shift, there's a failure, you've got other sources of identity to to lean into, or at least that will be there after that transition period. So that's where we're at right now. I'm sure that we're missing all kinds of stuff. What are, what are some other practical things that that listeners can do? And I'm asking the question like rhetorically, but also maybe one of you, both of you, have have answers here. Because we have a lot of listeners, right? Like I know our audience. We have a lot of athletes. We have a lot of young professionals. We have venture capitalists, attorneys. Tons of surgeons are listening to this podcast right now. Like people who want to be great at what they do and want to do it the right way. That's why they're listening. And this is going to be a popular episode because all of our listeners deal with this to some extent. We deal with it to some extent. Or is it really just as simple as like having these conversations with good people and that's it? Uh, I'll throw out some practical (laughs) tips or tactics, I guess. I mean, some which we've mentioned. I think think the surrounding yourself with good people and having conversations and discussions is so important. I think that sits number one is whatever your pursuit, find other people who are wrestling with these ideas and like be vulnerable and open and share with them. I I think some other practical tips are always have something in your life where you're exploring, right? We talked about this exploration versus cement idea. Um, Have something in your life where you're a little more like a kindergartner where you're just like, hey, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole for no other reason than it's a rabbit hole. And in my life, um, in my writing life, I, I do this about once a month as I'll find some research article that intrigues me and then just like go down the rabbit hole with no intention of like using it for a book or something else. I'm just like going to spend a couple hours like nerding out on some topic that is really interesting to me and, and explore it to a deep level. And sometimes it ends somewhere, sometimes it doesn't, but the expectation isn't there. And then the other thing that I think is really important is like, have some way or some method to switch off. And what I mean by that is not just like, hey, I'm going to go from doing the thing to not doing the thing, but having your mind, like giving your mind permission to stop thinking about work or the workout or whatever have you while you're eating dinner with your family. Like what I often find is like having some sort of transition. So um that is not that is not four beers in a Xanax. Right. But like, so I remember talking to some physician who's like, you know, is like, I was thinking about what happened, like, you know, today with the patients that I was working with and the what would I correct and do wrong? And I was taking that into home and he realized that his commute home should be the processing time. But like the moment the garage door opens and he pulls his car in, like that's the time to like, okay write down like what you learned and like leave it in the car in a notebook or whatever have you. So there's like a process for that. So it doesn't linger. And I think for pursuits that are things that tend to be kind of like identity cementing uh, or overwhelming or obsessing, find some sort of like routine that allows you to do that a little bit better. There's some research too, that shows that the very act of writing it down helps with that transition. Um, because like you're, you're physically purging it from your body and you're also telling your brain that this is stored. So you no longer have to keep thinking about this. Um, I think, 
I'm hearing what you're saying, Steve, and I'm like, I get that, but it's still really hard. It's hard for me. I'm not currently a beginner at anything. Like I write, I train, and I have my family and friends. Um, but then I got to thinking like reading fiction for me is maybe the thing. Like when I read fiction, there's zero expectation that I'm going to use it in any kind of work or anything. I just read fiction because I really enjoy like good fiction, how it makes me feel. Would that count as something that I'm dabbling in? So what I think a better way to frame it maybe is instead of saying explore is play with something like have something that you're like playing at, which is essentially like something you're doing for the joy, the fun, like the experience without the expectation of like, I'm going to use this. So whether it's me, like it sounds weird, but me going and researching a topic is kind of play for my mind. You going and reading fiction is play for your mind. So I think for others that might be listening to music or, you know, whatever, even podcasting could be part of this, like having interesting conversations for no point other, maybe not podcasting, but having interesting conversations, like play with some idea. So I I think that might be the right concept. I just think it gets hard. And maybe we're as writers, it's, it's not the best example, but I think this is true for anyone is like everything can be grist for the mill. I mean, I find that researching a topic just for the hell of it, 90% of those topics are I'm going to do something with, I'm going to write about. But I think that fiction's maybe easier because like we're not fiction writers, but even there it's like, oh, this is good fiction. I know that it's working on my subconscious, so, making me a better writer. So I, th- I think the part there is it's, it's again, the nuance of it is like you don't go in with the purpose of I'm going to create a book out of this or I'm going to create an article out of this. Like I'm going to use this fiction to like, you know, as an example on my next writing. Maybe another example is the, I think it was Google. I don't, I don't remember. Whatever company did where it was like, you know, on Fridays you have an hour. I think it's 3M. Yeah, 3M. That's right. Like to just go work on something that you want to work on. And yes, mm-hmm. it's work, but compared to, you know, oh, I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And like, I need to make progress in this manner. Like working on something that's like, hey, I don't know if this is going to work out or not. And that's okay. Like, this is just my kind of personal exploration on something that's kind of interesting me. Like, that's another form of like play at, at work. So I think, I think we can do this a lot in a lot more ways than, than we realize. We've just kind of got to give us the permission to. I also think to go back to the process, like you learn, need to love the process of doing it. <clears throat> One thing that I've found helpful is when I do set out to, to achieve a really lofty goal, I often you know, think, what are my motivations for doing this? Like really examine them. And then sometimes even write them down because in the process of working towards something, we've talked about this before, you can sort of lose sight of the game you're playing and you can start playing someone else's game. And I think just being like, you know, I thought about this a lot when I tried to, when I did try to run the, a three hour marathon, I was like, why are you doing this? And part of me had to be like, are you, this is, says more about me than, than I would like to admit. But part of me was like, are you doing this just so you can like post about it on Instagram? And, and I had to really be like, no, I wanted to do this because it seems like something that is very challenging for me. And I had to like, remember to, to, to check in with that anytime I felt like it was turning into a job or whatever. And just, I even, you know, you like write it down and revisit that when you start to lose sight of it. I think that can be helpful as well. 
Yeah. And I think it's okay if some of it is external. Like I want to be the kind of person that can run a sub three marathon. That's going to get into your head, especially if you have like a very objective goal. Mm -hmm. But I think you got to be careful when that becomes like the driving force. Yeah. Um, But then like, this is a whole other bag of worms, which is like addiction to the thing. And I, I want to be careful. I don't want to misuse addiction. So we're not going to say that. That's not right. It's not addiction to the thing, but like doing the thing because you just love it or doing the thing because you're addicted to making progress. Mm-hmm. And like, for me, the example would be, yeah, I train to get stronger, but like, I, I want to lift more weight and I want there to be numbers. And I could train just as hard without any care for numbers and that would be, that would, that would, the training would look the exact same, but psychologically it would be very different. And I think that that to me is like a, a wanting to make progress that is okay. Cause it doesn't have negative impacts on my life. If anything, I'm enjoying it, but I often wonder one for how long will that be the case? And two, is it healthy? Does that make sense? So like my training could be the exact same. But if in the back of my mind, it's, I'm going to lift 550 pounds or whatever the number is, it's very different than if I truly don't care about numbers. Like if I am truly an enlightened Buddha level athlete, like Steve, where I genuinely believe Steve just runs hard and does not care at all about a single number, but the workouts are just the same. Like if Steve was stressing over the numbers, you wouldn't notice anything different watching him, but what's happening in between the ears is probably very different. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a hundred percent is like, there is a difference between like what's going on in your mind, what you're attributing to it, what your mind kind of latches on to. And also I think how you judge yourself, right? So the example I'll give is I can go down to a track and if I run a hard 400, right. Or all out, let's say a very hard mile. If I get to the end of that and say, hey, the goal was like, I didn't care about the numbers. I just want to feel this fatigue. And I'm like splayed out on the track and just like can't can barely breathe and kind of throw up. I can say, this is great. But if I wanted to run X time, that has changed and I didn't. Or even if I did, that has changed the meaning of that activity, even if it was the exact same time that I ran on each. And I think that's what's kind of tricky about about these things is that our interpretation, our mental kind of uh, view of whatever it is we're doing, like impacts things to such a degree, even if we don't change the activity itself whatsoever. Yeah, I love it. That's a really good framing. There's no answer, but that's the right framing. Do you quit fiction books you don't like, Brad? I do, but to be honest, my filter for figuring out what to read has gotten really good where that hasn't had to happen in a long time because by the time I commit to reading a novel, I've like heard from enough people that I'm really going to like it. Or if it's like a big novel, I just commit to it and I have faith that like if this is one of the great novels of, you know, the last 200 years, I'm going to get something out of it even if I have to work at it. So the book I'm reading right now, Brothers Karamazov, I really struggled for the first 250 pages, 
But one, it's like one of the great Russian novels. And two, our intern, Nate, who I think is the smartest under 30 in America, is like, it's the best book ever. It's the best book ever. I'm like, well, maybe I'm just not as sharp as Nate, but I'm going to stick with it. And now I'm like 600 pages in and it's not going to be one of my favorite books ever, but I'm really glad that I'm reading it. Um, but otherwise, like the other books I read this year, I mean, they're just like, they're bang out novels that everyone loves for a reason. Nate's in Canada, man. Nate's not in America. No, but he, what I'm saying is even in the population of America, Nate could compete for the, the 30 under 30. Uh, Brad, Brad should have said North America. That's he's discounting Canada. Don't, you know, it's its own place, Canada. I know, you know, don't, don't know geography well, Brad, but you know, yeah. Nate, Nate, 30 under 30 North America. You know, what'll be my sign off and a nice closing for this. So I just got, um, uh, a little ping on my screen and I went to check because I, I got a coaching client soon and I thought maybe it's him rescheduling or something, but it's not. It was a New York times sometimes pings me when they've got new stories in the title of this. This is so perfect for the arrival fallacy and everything we're talking about. You ready for this? It's a picture of David Beckham, and it says, every star wants a documentary now. The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan-backed documentary about, well, him, has inspired several celebrities to commission their own biographical films. So you never arrive. You become David Beckham, one of the most well-known brands and names, Michael Jordan. And you can't just sail off in retirement. You got to have the documentary film, even if you self-fund it. I mean, seriously, like if that's not enough fame, then being partner at your VC firm, if, it, if, if, if Beckham's not fulfilled, guess what? You're not going to get fulfilled either. And I think it's really just like accepting that. Like that's just human nature. So surround yourself. And I'm sure there's ulterior motive or like maybe ulterior is not the right word. There's probably other motives, you know, have it for my family, have it for my kids, but come on, like to reach that level of stardom. And I click now this article is essentially saying that Every single famous person now wants a Netflix documentary about themselves. I, I can't wait for the uh, when Brad Stolberg commissions his own documentary, which will just be a ninety percent deadlifting videos, and, um, and it'll no be cold, a, it'll be no a cold showers, no cold showers and deadlifting. <laughs> yeah, you know, if anyone wants to do it, my budget's two hundred eighty-four dollars. So hit me up, filmmakers. <laughs> All right, I think we I think that we've covered it then. Um yeah, but I, one quick thing on that though, Brad, is like I feel like cuz that felt like kind of a hopeless place to end. But I don't feel like we as a society we hold those people up as sort of the 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 arbor uh, not the arbiters, but like the the type the version of success that we it's, should all be striving but, for. But I don't no, think that it's is. not. We should be striving yeah. for and in, in in all right. So I'm I'm gonna say something that some people like Clay who don't apparently spend any time on the internet, good for you, are gonna be like lost about. Some people are gonna think this is controversial, others won't. But technology aside, whatever ends up happening with artificial intelligence, whether it leads to a utopia or it kills us all. Sam Altman, the founder of OpenAI, the way that he seems to approach this and has built this is I really think the model for how to do this, which is if you want to strive for greatness as something, do it, but do it with the right people and let those relationships be like the core of it where it doesn't matter. You know, your board pulls funding, whatever. I'm just going to take these cool people and do it somewhere else. 
Like make it about the thing, make it about the people. And I would argue pursuing, I mean, shit, it's why we brought you on. It's why we're growing the growth equation. You know, Steve and I could have just coasted, but we're like, no, like we want to, we want to push the envelope. We want to see if we can reach more people. We want to try new formats. Like we want to be more known. We want to pursue excellence in our little domain and our little niche of the universe. And like, why is because like pursuing greatness and excellence and goals is, is wonderful. You just got to know about the risks and you got to do it with good people. And I think that's actually a really like inspirational, empowering message. Yeah, I, I don't agree. Know. That's, that's my hype speech. I love it. It's also why I joined the podcast. So there we go. Much more Steve, hopeful place to end. Steve, what about you? Bring us down, Eeyore. I, I, I don't know what to say besides that. I mean, I, the only thing I would say is, is this. If you're, you're hearing this and you're like young Steve and you're just like, oh, this is all bullshit. Like, yeah, I thought you were going to say everyone's doping, to be honest. I, you know, that <laughs> young Steve didn't know everyone was doping. That was middle-aged Steve. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think it's easy to say like, hey, I'm going to go all in, like obsess, like this is the way to do it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just telling you as an athlete who did that, you might get pretty good. You might accomplish some things, but I think it's it's the path. It's not the sustainable path. So what I would I would my word of advice for people is it's okay to like push boundaries to you know work super hard to make one thing the main thing for a while, but like develop the self awareness that you can step back and that often to use you know, Tackle Brad encompasses doing good things with good people who you trust. Um, and if you surround yourself wisely, good things will happen. And I would also say, you know, Brad, it's okay if you want to coast for a while on things, you know, know what you want to coast in and, and that's okay. So there's my message. I hope you're not coasting in the growth equation, Steve. <laughs> you know, I, my books sell, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not coasting there. My books sell. Once my books start, stop selling. Maybe that's your indicator. I'm, I'm coasting, but I give, I give you guys my all. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's, this is why I don't give my running my all. I'm not running a hundred miles a week so that I can give, you know, clay and Brad and Chris and Nate and the growth equation listeners, everything I got on my newsletter and these podcasts and, and the books and everything else we do. But I am, co- you know, one place I am coasting, Brad, my Instagram. And I'm fine with that. Yeah. I'm you're coasting with- hard at Steve co- Magnus. You, you, you want to see some coasting follow at Steve Magnus. It's great. It's great. The content is great. The coasting is on the design because who has, who wants to do that? So there yeah. you go. Hillary and Hazley, he meant to mention you both too, that he also gives his all to you. Um, he just, he knows that so deep in his heart, he doesn't even have to say it, but there's zero chance that either of you are listening. So it's all good. <laughs> That's a given. And they don't listen. They're, they're not reading anything I write. This is the, no, none of my family reads anything I write. So it doesn't matter. I could, I could say anything and they'll never listen or read it. So we're all good. Yeah. Yeah. No, the never mind. I'm going to stop right now before I get myself into trouble. Um, 
Listeners, thank you so much. We hope that you found today's conversation as interesting as we did. Uh, Per the usual, if you enjoy the show, please rate and review it. This helps new people find it. The other thing that you can do is share it with colleagues, family, and friends. Uh, If you're not yet subscribed, be sure to subscribe so you get new episodes every week. We're really excited about the podcast. We've got all kinds of neat things coming down in the pipeline uh, heading into next year as we try to take this to the next level. So thanks for being a part of it. And until then, we'll catch you next week. Thank you.